Um, kind of celebrating a little bit this morning. I uh, watched um, one of my cousins get married. Uh, it's pretty significant for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons it's a, a big celebration is I was talking to one of my uh, one of my aunts. My dad has three three younger sisters, and uh, in the late '60s, neither he nor any of them were believers in Jesus Christ, and they came from a uh, I think the polite term is a dysfunctional family, um, deeply sinful family. And uh, first my dad and then his three sisters all came to Christ. And then uh, each of them married a, uh, a godly woman or a godly man. And then we've watched as the next generation of uh, of young people has grown up, me and my sisters and my brother and all of my cousins. And uh, this was my youngest cousin. I'll tell you how young. Uh, she was an infant when I got married to Karen. So that made me feel old. <laughs> all right. But uh, we watched uh, as God has been faithful to another generation of people. And we're watching a, a now a third generation of God's faithfulness uh, to his people. Uh, the Lord says in uh, Exodus that he shows his love to a thousand generations of those who love him. And we've not yet seen a thousand generations, but we're, we're at least advancing that direction. And so it's a great celebration for us. Uh, Karen and, uh, and uh, three of my kids are off still celebrating this morning over in Indiana, and uh, Sarah and I are here together to worship with you, and we're, we're blessed to get to do that. So let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll open God's Word together. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your steadfast love and faithfulness. We thank you for the fact that if we will turn to Christ, we will find in Him new life not only for eternity, but new life for right now. New life down here before your face. New life which changes us from the inside out as your spirit comes into our lives. And Father, we're excited to open your word this morning. We pray we would be hungry for it, that we would consume it, and that it would nourish us and change us from the inside out. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be back in Romans chapter 6 this morning. Uh, I'm excited to get to do that. Uh, we're talking this morning about rebellion and, uh, and the right kind of rebellion. If you are an American, uh, rebellion has to be one of the title contenders for uh, the quintessential American value because, after all, our country was born out of rebellion against her king, and our history is largely the story of people who have constantly rebelled against the ways that things had always been done before. And so, whether we're talking about political revolution or we're talking about uh, technological innovation, or we're talking about spreading a nation from one ocean to the other, we are rebellious people. And authority does not sit lightly on our shoulders. 
when I was a younger man, some of the big songs on the radio, if you remember back this far, were Born to be Wild, right? Fire all your guns at once and shoot off into space, right? Uh, like a true nature's child, we were born, born to be wild. And I remember the kind of stations my dad used to listen to were the country stations, and so the big song that we heard over and over and over back in the 70s was, take this job and shove it, right? Johnny Paycheck, right? Uh, I ain't working here no more. Woman done left and took every reason I was working for, right? So take this job and shove it, right? Uh, We are rebellious people. Our culture loves stories where the heroes are men and women who operate completely outside the law. I mean, this is the entire reason for every Chuck Norris and Arnold Schwarzenegger movie ever made, right? By the way, uh, Chuck Norris does not do push-ups. He pushes the world down, right? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Uh, But... um, We love these stories. We love the A-Team. We love the Magnificent Seven. We love Liam Neeson movies, right? And a lot of us will sit through however many Star Wars movies Disney eventually decides to make for us because we love to see the rebellion triumph one more time over the Empire, right? We love that. And believe it or not, that rebellious streak that runs through virtually every American's heart uh, can be deeply beneficial to your spiritual life if it's properly directed. A lot of times we come to think of the Christian life as one in which we have been transformed uh, by the love and grace of God from a rebel at war with Him into His obedient child. And that's not a bad way of thinking about it. There's certainly nothing wrong with that. In fact, it reflects a whole lot of biblical teaching. But here in Romans 6, I want to give you another way of thinking about the Christian life, which is of rebellion against your sin nature and its rule over you. If you are a person who has put their trust in Christ, you have at war within you the Spirit of God and your sinful nature. And you need to join the Spirit's rebellion against your sinful nature and its reign over your life. We haven't simply come to peace with God through His grace given to us in Christ. We've also switched sides in a war that has been declared within and against our own souls. And what is fantastic about joining God's side in that war is that, believe it or not, you are guaranteed victory. You, are, you have joined the winning side. You are going to win in the war over your sinful nature. You are a rebel in a cause that is guaranteed success. Because God is now on the same side as you. Because you have switched sides. So if you've got your Bible, I invite you to turn with me over to Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at uh, verses 12 through 14, from which we get our orders from headquarters on how to tell us, to tell us how to be a successful rebel in our war against sin's reign over our lives. So if you've got your Bible there, verse 12, first of all, uh, you have to reject sin's desires. 
let, us, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So step number one, if you want to be a successful rebel against sin, is to reject sin's desires. You have to ignore the commands that come to us from within our own hearts. There is a part of us that deeply resonates with and deeply desires to engage in sin. And you have to reject those commands from within your heart that move you towards sin. Our biggest problem as people is not our environment. Amen? It's not that, it's not that you know, we, were, we, we hung out with the wrong crowd. That is not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is, is that there is, a, there is a, a base of rebellion against God within each of our hearts, and it wants to get out and to reign over us. And you have to reject sin's desires within you. Uh, it's you know, this part of you that, that is who you were on the inside prior to meeting Jesus and receiving salvation through faith in Christ is still there. It's still there. And it's still active and still tries to establish its rule over you. Uh, If you're a believer in Christ and you've been one for longer than five minutes, you know that even though Jesus has freed you from the penalty of sin, and that He has set you free from sin and death, so that if you sin, you suffer eternally in hell. You die separated from God. Even though He separated you from the penalty of sin, and even though sin no longer has power over you so that you don't have to do what it says, its presence is still a reality that we contend with. Amen? Its presence is still a reality that we contend with. Uh, So even though we don't have to sin... Because Christ's death and resurrection has given us new life and therefore new ability and a new master in the person of Jesus, we still have within us a sin nature and it produces within us a strong desire to sin. And it tells us deep within our hearts that the way to find joy and fulfillment and happiness in life is not through obeying God, but through obeying sin. And the primary way that our sins are enacted is through our mortal bodies and the corrupted desires that our sin nature gives them. And so that's why he says, let not therefore sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. But there's a part of us that wants to obey that. And so we trade eternal reward for satisfying sinful desires that are enacted by a body that dies. When he says your mortal body, that's what he means. That you're trading in. Don't trade in eternal reward for the desires of a body corrupted by sin and that body which is eventually going to die. And we understand this because sometimes we choose to use our sexual organs 
to feed our lusts instead of building godly intimacy with the spouse that God gave us. We use our tongues to give vent to anger and rage and bitterness and to fuel gossip and deceit and slander. We use our hands to wound and to kill rather than to heal and to build up. Our feet run into wickedness instead of running toward the Lord. With our eyes, we commit lust and greed and covetousness and envy and jealousy. With our ears, we drink in juicy gossip about other people. And we love to hear others slandered. And we filter out what is good and true and beautiful and lovely to listen to. And in short, our sinful nature works through every part of our bodies to give us desires that take us away from God. And by the way, your sinful nature lies to you. It, mine lies to me. Our sinful nature lies to us. It tells us that being deceitful is going to protect your relationships instead of destroying them. Amen? We think that. That's why we lie. We think, we're going to, I'm going to avoid getting in trouble here, and so I'm going to tell this lie. I'm going to... I'm going to not tell somebody what I actually think because, you know, that might damage the relationship and instead of being honest enough to actually reveal what you really think and build trust and deeper connection with one another as you're actually open with one another. Uh, we think that satisfying lust is better than purity. We think that rage and cursing will get us what we want when people disappoint us and frustrate us. We think that greed and selfishness are, are not nice names for me getting what I deserve. We are told by our sinful nature that our pride and arrogance are just me sticking up for myself and having good self-esteem. We're told by our sinful nature that unforgiveness is justified by other people's sins against me, and so on, and so on, and so on. But every one of these things is a lie that our sinful nature tells us. And if we are not careful, what we wind up doing is believing these lies that our sinful nature tells us and letting sin reign over us, even though because of Christ's death and resurrection, it no longer has to. We voluntarily opt for sin to reign over us. And Paul says, don't let sin reign over you. Don't obey what your sinful nature tells you to do. Not only does it not have to, but it if you allow it to, it destroys you. And Christ came to set us free from sin's reign. Amen? Amen. Now let me be very clear. While God has given us within our hearts His Holy Spirit, and He has given us by His Holy Spirit the same power which raised Christ from the dead. So we have within us the same power which raised Christ from the dead 
that we might obey Christ instead of sin. But we still have to, even though we possess the Holy Spirit within us, we still have to choose to reject sin's reign over us. In other words, the fact that the the Holy Spirit is present within you at the moment you put your trust in Jesus does not mean that God is just automatically going to bring about freedom from sins, uh, from your obedience to sin. Now, He is going to start to work in you, and He's going to start to change your desires and give you a new new heart and a new uh, set of desires to obey. But this isn't a magical transformation. You have to choose to obey the Spirit instead of your sinful nature. It is a choice. A daily choice. Many times a moment-by-moment choice to reject the sinful nature and its desires and instead to embrace God's Spirit within you and to obey His desires and commands for you instead. Your sanctification is not going to happen through some combination of of good theological knowledge and miraculous intervention. Simply knowing that this has happened is not enough to actually bring about change. You have to choose to follow Christ. You have to choose to walk by the Spirit. And having, having experienced salvation uh, through God's grace, by God's grace, you also yield to the Holy Spirit, in so doing, reject sinful desires. Uh, now, uh, that's, the, that's the negative side. Uh, but we also get, in verse 13, the positive side. We're not just to reject sin's desires. We're also to obey God. Verse 13. Look at verse 13 with me. Uh, Do not present your, your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, I will just confess to you all, I am a Star Wars fan. Now, I'm not... I'm not a total geek. I don't still have any action figures or anything like that, okay? Um, I did have a bunch back in the 80s. But I don't still have any of those. Uh, I I do have somewhere floating around my house uh, the original theatrical release of the first three movies on VHS. I have to figure out where the VHS player is to actually play them. But... Um, but I do enjoy those movies, and I enjoyed the, the, the most recent two that they came out with. You know, we won't talk about those ones from the 90s, but, um, but those, the, the, the most recent two they came out with, I really enjoyed, because they, they kind of recaptured for me the magic of that that I first felt as a boy at the drive-in watching these, right? Um, and probably one of, the, one of my favorite characters from the most recent movies is a man named Finn. Do you remember him? Those of you who saw the movie? Finn. Um, And he is a former stormtrooper. He's a former stormtrooper. He's a former servant of the evil First Order. He's been sent to destroy portions of the resistance. 
And he is a great character because he is a man who has switched sides. Uh, But he is someone who, like you and I, has to grow into his new status as a member of the resistance. And in a sense, that's what a Christian is like. We are like people who have switched sides in the war. And we have left the side of evil, and we have joined the side of good, and of truth, and of what is right. We are people, to use Paul's phrase from from uh, 1 Corinthians, I mean, not 1 Corinthians, Colossians chapter 1, he says, you have been rescued from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's dear Son. You have switched sides. You have been rescued. You have been transformed by the grace of God into a new person. You're not a stormtrooper anymore. Now, you're part of the resistance against sin, against evil, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. You have switched sides. But you've got to grow into that new status that you possess. And there's, a, there's, a, there's two sides of that coin. There is a way of embracing holiness and replacing sin in your life with holiness. And this passage here, verse 13, gives us both sides of that coin. And on the one hand, Paul says, do not present your bodies, present the parts of your body as tools to be used by the sinful nature. And the verb tense that's there, I won't get into all the, all the technicalities of that, but the idea is, is that the verb tense that's there says this is an action that needs to be continually done in the present. This is something that is an ongoing thing that you have to continue doing. Do not go on presenting your bodies to the sinful nature as tools for its use. Do not present your bodies, the the members of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. This is a constant struggle. This is a continuously repeated action because the sinful nature and the war against it is continual. Amen? And this is something you have to constantly do. Therefore, you have to constantly resist. You have to constantly be on your guard against the sinful nature's desires to pursue sin and to make the parts of your body instruments of unrighteousness. And the flip side is that while you're doing this, you must instead present the members of your body, your eyes, your ears, your tongue, your hands, your feet, your sexual organs, every part of your body, instead as instruments for His use, for godliness and for holiness. And here, again, the verb tense is interesting. It carries a slightly different idea than the first one, It's the idea of decisive action. That you take a step at a point in time and you drive a stake there. And you say, from this point forward, I am shaping 
my actions so that they have changed direction and I'm headed toward the Lord. I am devoting myself to the Lord from this point forward. And I would bet that a lot of us are familiar with the ongoing struggle against our sinful desires. And what remains is a constant need to do that, to be on your guard against the desires of the sinful nature and to stop presenting them as instruments for its use. But since we want to fully obey God, even in the midst of that struggle, there also must be a day There must be a day on which you pledge your allegiance. When you are inducted into the military, there is a day when you pledge your allegiance. Amen? And you say, I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And you know, know, all these things, right? And you pledge your allegiance. There is a day when a transformation has taken place. And from that day forward, all of your actions are shaped by the pledge that you have made. And in the same way, there also, if you are a believer in Christ, must be a day on which you pledge your allegiance. There must be a day on which you, like the patriots who started the American Revolution, I had to learn this back in high school in government class, right? And these guys said, we hereby pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Back when politicians had sacred honor to pledge, right? Um, (laughs) Yeah, amen, right? Uh, Our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. In other words, everything we are, everything we have, we offer to this cause. And there must be a day, Paul says here, that you present yourself, everything you are, everything you possess to the Lord for His cause and for His use. And then, having switched allegiance in a decisive way, we make progress in the daily fight. And that decision that we made has ongoing effects for us. So we don't just stop using our eyes for lust and greed and covetousness and jealousy and envy. Instead, we use them to gaze on God and on His beauty as revealed in His Word. We don't just stop using our sex organs for satisfying our lusts. If we're married, we devote them to God and to honoring unity and mutual joy with our spouse if God gives us one. And if we are single, we devote them to being chaste and to being pure and to being holy with our bodies until God gives us a spouse, if that's His plan, or until the day when we enter into eternity when something much better than sex arrives. When we stand in the presence of God. And we don't just stop using our tongues as weapons of rage and bitterness and deceit and slander and gossip, we use them to build up and to encourage and to bless. And we use our hands to heal instead of to wound and to kill. We use our feet to run to Jesus 
and to run away from sin. And we do all of this, Paul tells us in verse 13, because we have been brought from death to life. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are dead while you stand. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you have an eternal destiny that as of today is headed toward hell. And you are continuing in rebellion against God and in your sin that will result one day in your death. And in your judgment and in your separation from God and from everything which He created, including every other person that He made. You are dead while you stand. You are a dead man walking. But when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, you have been brought from death to life. And we who are believers in Christ already know that. We enjoy that. We experience that. We celebrate that. When we gather here on Sunday, we sing about that. We praise God for that. That He has brought us from death to life. And as people who have been brought from death to life, receive the tremendous, unexpected, undeserved miracle of God's saving grace, we live our lives for Him. Because we are people who have been brought from death to life. Best example I've ever seen of this movie, Saving Private Ryan. Seen this? Back in the day, you watched this movie? This is the, well, probably the greatest movie of about a guy who was rescued from death and brought to life that I've ever seen. Saving Private Ryan's about a guy uh, played by Matt Damon, Private Ryan. He's the last of five brothers. One family. Previous four brothers have all been killed World War II. And D-Day comes, and a squad of soldiers led by Tom Hanks goes in to go get him. We're going to bring Private Ryan out and send him home to his mama so that she has at least one boy who makes it out of this war alive. Hope I'm not spoiling the movie for anybody, but all members of the squad that go to rescue Private Ryan get killed along the way. But Private Ryan makes it home. And the movie ends, the movie ends at Normandy in a field of white crosses with Private Ryan, now an old man. And he's standing there with a wife who's also an old lady and kids and grandkids. And they're all standing there listening to Grandpa tell his story. And this beach which had been covered in blood and mines and bombs and bodies is now a field of white crosses. And Private Ryan stands there in front of the grave of his captain. And he asks his wife with tears in his eyes, was I worth it? Was I worth it? And she puts her arms around him and she says, yes. Jim Ryan, you're a good man. You were worth it. 
And do you know what the glory of the Gospel is? It is that the God of the universe, the God who made all things that exist, the God who who spoke and the planets came into being, the God who made giraffes and tigers and whales and dinosaurs, the God who made human beings in His image, looked down through the corridors of history and saw you and saw me and said, you are worth it. And He will send His Son to die on a cross, naked, bleeding, and ashamed, wrapped in your sin and mine, and to declare for all time, you are worth it. And I will do whatever it takes to put you in my family. I will do whatever it takes that you might be a member of my family. That's what it means when it says we have been brought from death to life. God has mounted the greatest rescue mission in all history and has brought us to Himself. and Taken us home to be His sons and daughters. God believes that you and I are worth it. And we are so supremely worth the cost that He sent His only begotten Son to die for you and me. That we might escape from the domain of darkness and sin and death. We have been brought from death to life. And in our joy in having escaped, we live our lives in obedience to God. Amen? In our joy in realizing that we have been brought from death to life, we live our lives in obedience to God. And here's one other great reason to be persistent in rejecting sin's desires and obeying God as we rebel against sin's reign. It's because we are guaranteed, guaranteed success. Look at verse 14 with me. By grace we triumph over sin. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Now a lot of people misread this, I think. This is not a command. This is a promise. This is not a command. This is a promise. You and I can present all the various parts of our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness precisely because we are free from sin. The Gospel means that sin has no lordship over us. It does not have to reign. And we do not have to let it. Because we have a new king. We have replaced the old master with the new king, King Jesus. 
And, the con- and let me explain the contrast here between law and grace. If you are under the law, then your inability to keep it perfectly means that you are right back under sin's power because the law serves to point out your sin without giving you any more ability to obey it. The law points out your sin. And it says, see, that's a sin. There's another one. Oh, there's another one. I can't believe you did that. That is the function of the law in our life. But the grace we have received from God through faith in Christ means that Christ has kept the law in its entirety on my behalf. And it also means that I am empowered for obedience that is far higher and better than the law itself demands because I have been set free from sin's reign within my own heart. And it also means that when I do sin, that I don't have to remain under sin's power, subject to its penalty because its power and penalty have been canceled out by the by the grace of God in the death and resurrection of the Savior. The Gospel cancels out our sin and our sins and their power over us so that we can live free as rebels against sin's reign and as devoted children of God instead. And our cause is guaranteed to win because Christ has already won the victory for us by His grace. Amen? John Bunyan said it this way. He said, run, John, run. The law commands. It gives me neither feet nor hands. A different word the Gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. We have a better way of obedience because we have been transformed by the grace of God and made his children. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You. Those words seem entirely inadequate. But we thank You for Your magnificent, marvelous, transforming, unexpected, undeserved grace and favor by which we were bought from the domain of darkness, rescued and transformed into children devoted to God who rebel against sin and enthrone You daily in our lives. Father, I pray that we would make that daily, moment-by-moment decision to depose our old Master and His reign over us and to enthrone Christ that we might live lives that are full of joy. And Father, we pray for Your strength and for Your, for your empowerment for the fight ahead. In Jesus' name, Amen.